Hi, folks. I'm your host, Christy. There are countless unsolved cases in our local area, forgotten stories, erased names, yet we walk among their echoes every day. Can we ignore these unsolved stories, these criminals that lurk in our neighborhood? Welcome to Death, Lies, and Alibis. Here, we only have one mission, to shine a light on local true crime cold cases, to venture into these mysteries that have lain dormant for far too long. Now, I'm no detective, but like you, I'm driven by a thirst for truth and justice. This is not just my journey or yours, it's ours. By listening, by questioning, by caring, we breathe life into these victims' stories. Join me. Let's rewrite the narrative of these cold cases and justices together. Every fogged memory, every unsolved crime gets another chance to be told on our podcast. So picture this, a small, lovely town nestled in the heart of Ohio. It's bustling with tight-knit neighborhoods, friendly faces, and a sense of security that you'd expect from any traditional small town. But beneath the surface lies a hidden darkness, a collection of unanswered questions that cast shadows on the souls who call this place home. So grab your headphones, lock your doors, and be prepared to enter a world where the truth has evaded investigators for years. Welcome to Muskingum County's Darkest Secrets. Ashley Pacconi Johnson was born into a broken home in a small town, facing incredible odds from the start. Yet, she possessed an unbreakable spirit, always fighting to overcome the devastating incidents that marked her life. One such incident was her dark past of sexual abuse that was during her younger years, a demon she carried throughout her life. But the turning point came when she was just 14 years old, brutally attacked by a dog that left her with physical scars and deep psychological wounds. Surprisingly, Ashley found herself with a significant sum of money from a lawsuit following that dog attack. But without proper guidance or support, this newfound wealth led her down a treacherous path. Surrounded by like-minded individuals and a ready supply of drugs, Ashley's addiction spiraled out of control, plunging her into the dangerous world of IV drug use. And as if life hadn't been cruel enough, Ashley's story took another dark turn when she married a controlling and violent gang member. The shed in their backyard became the stage for their drug-induced hours, ultimately becoming the site of Ashley's tragic demise. On a cold March morning, Ashley's lifeless body was discovered in that shed. While the officials say the cause of death was an overdose, the presence of trauma marks pointed to something far more sinister. Murder. Death certificate states homicide. This case rippled the public's attention, leaving more questions than answers. The impact of Ashley's life rippled throughout the lives connected to hers. Her children, once filled with happiness, now they live apart. Haunted by the absence of their mother they barely knew. 
And then there is her grieving mother and sister, left with the unfulfillable void in their hearts, but they are filled with anger, grief, and countless burning questions. They embark on a desperate journey for justice. In their tireless pursuit of truth, Ashley's family aims to ensure that her violent death is recognized by law authorities. They believe that this podcast will serve as a powerful reminder of the severe impacts of drug abuse and domestic violence in our society. But the story doesn't stop here. As we venture deeper into Ashley's case, we discover another woman's path who intertwined with hers, Kylie Lindell, a name that echoes throughout the streets and trap houses in Zanesville, Ohio. Could their shared dangerous lifestyle have also linked them in death? Remember to keep Ashley Johnson in your thoughts as we discuss Kylie Lindell's tragic fate. We suspect that a gang known as the Real Riders or the Double R's may have ensnared both women, leaving a lasting scar on our community and leading to at least one murder and possibly more. To hear Ashley's full story, make sure to listen to the Shed of Secrets episode on your favorite podcast platform. And now, here's Kylie Lindell's story. Authorities had suspected that a group of 24 people cooperated with Brian Adams, who committed the horrifying act of murdering Kylie Lindell on March 31, 2018. Out of this group, 17 individuals were handed punishment, a combined sentence of over 80 years. A local task force took on this case, investing thousands of overtime hours and more than $30,000 to thoroughly investigate this horrific crime. This episode uncovers the heartbreaking story of how Kylie, a loving person known as a mother, a sister, a daughter, and a friend, who was brutally killed over a mere $50. Or was it something else entirely? We're researching this tip also. On the early morning of April 2, 2018, the Zanesville Fire Department received a call to put out a fire that had engulfed 1848 Ridge Avenue. Upon arriving, firefighters encountered the fire hydrants had been broken. They had been deliberately run over and no longer useful. Ryan Adams and the Real Riders gang were already under investigation by the Zanesville Muskingum County Drug Unit. They had been linked to numerous incidents at this location, which is recognized as one of several Real Riders trap houses. Having noticed the house and had been torched to ashes, the detectives returned to the police station where they discovered a report had been made of gunshots being fired at that exact place on the fateful evening of March 30th. There were numerous calls claiming drug activities taking place at this location. The officers responded to another reported incident of gunfire shortly before midnight on March 30th. Both officers talked with the person who lodged the complaint and individuals outside the Ridge Avenue residence. While the officers did hear a loud sound a few minutes after their arrival, the cause and exact location of the sound were undetermined. A neighboring yard had a large fire burning, and there were speculations that it could have been fireworks in March. Okay. 
Officers interacted with Brian Adams and Brandy Edmondson outside the residence, who claimed that there wasn't anyone else present. The officers also spoke with Paul Beale, who had just arrived in search of his brother. After approximately 20 minutes on the scene, officers were ordered by their superiors to resume their dirty duties and address other calls. So an assumption was made that the sounds of gunshots could have been from the bonfire. Adams was identified as probably the potential source of the problem at the residence, and with him gone, the, probably would prob- the problem would probably resolved. If only they knew then that Kylie Lindell's body was being moved within the residence and that the occupants were in the process of getting rid of evidence. Ryan Adams, implicated in the murder case, became tied to the Real Riders prison gang during his incarceration in a Noble County Correctional Institution. His conviction stemmed from an aggravated assault charge after he violently attacked a woman in 2015. His release from prison in the summer of 2017 marked his self-promotion as a local head of the gang, made up of rogue criminals distributing drugs across the region. According to records, Adams had been incarcerated twice in the Ohio prison system. Despite Adams' self-proclaimed leadership, he was not a true leader within the gang. Instead, his value lay in his connection to Ernesto Lopez and his ability to get drugs. Lopez, an undocumented immigrant from Mexico, had been channeling meth into Zanesville for over a decade. Lopez was drawn into the light of the community only due to his association with Adams during the investigation in Tylee's murder. In November, he received only a six-year prison sentence for drug trafficking and weapons offenses. Upon release, he will be subject to deportation due to his involvement in the drug trade. And that will be next year, folks. Adams, with his drug connections, wielded power over a group of women, most of them involved with sex trafficking, who he essentially held captive to their addiction. An equal number of men followed him for various reasons. Addiction does make you stupid. Adams would take their benefits for drugs, essentially controlling these people through their addictions. His operation wasn't a joke and involved many local and regional people in southeast counties. Locally, Adams had formed an alliance with a real estate owner, John Kemp. Kemp was gaining a steady income from the rent of the multiple properties and access to the women that Adams had under his control. So in exchange, Kemp provided Adams with houses to sell his narcotics. When police became suspicious of a particular property, Kemp would just help Adams relocate on short notice. During this period, Kylie, who was local to the area, became romantically involved with Adams and entered the world of drugs. Kylie, who had grown up in a good, loving home, had a relatively average life. She had married in her late teens to Todd Lindell, a man over 10 years her senior, they had two sons together until Todd's premature death in 2010 at the age of only 48. And not long after becoming a widow, Kylie's life spiraled. Her silk girl friends started changing along with her habits. In tw- October 2017, Kylie was initiated into the Real Riders gang, representing a turning point in her life. 
Adams hosted a party where the existing gang leader, Justin Dunkel, gave his approval for Kylie to join their ranks, marking her as the first female member. On that day, she received two tattoos, Property of Ryan Ray and Savage. The latter identified her as a part of Adams' particularly group within the Real Riders. Soon after Kylie's induction, Adams steadily escalated his abuse of her. He seized possession of her Social Security disability money and spent her income entirely on his own purposes. He ensured her loyalty and obedience by providing her with just enough heroin to keep her from getting dope sick. By January of 2018, the abuse had escalated significantly. There were even several instances of public beatings. Adams himself, or a gang member at his request, would physically assault Kylie. On one occasion, a gang member who refused to carry out to beat Kylie was severely disciplined and badly beaten himself. On another occasion, Kylie was beaten so badly by Adams that she ended up in the hospital. While there, she did reach out to police for help, but her fear made her leave before they could arrive for a follow-up. Despite the hardship, she attempted to escape the destructive lifestyle in order to improve her life. She particularly tried to reconnect with her family, most importantly her sons, just 19 days before her tragic demise, when she posted on social media that she was sober from heroin for 26 days, people flooded her post with, post with encouraging words. However, by the 30th of March, when she had been sober from heroin for 50 days, she confessed to facing struggles and asked her friends to turn her away if she came asking for money. Mm, girl, I feel ya. She was still entangled in Adam's criminal activities, continuing to abuse and traffic meth for him. Meanwhile, on that same day, Brandy Edmondson and Tiffany Lewis were released from the city jail on misdemeanor charges. They were supposed to go into court-ordered treatment that day, but instead, they went to a trap house on Putnam Avenue and got high. Edmondson contacted Larry Hamilton, who informed her that Adams was aware of her release. Edmondson, like many of Adams' females, was involved in a sexual relationship with him and was often on the receiving end of his violent outburst. She and Lewis called Devonnie Goins for a ride, but he couldn't help. They called Olivia Davis, the mother of Adams' child, and asked for a lift to 1848 Ridge Avenue. This is the house of John, quote, Uncle Downing. Adams was there when they arrived, and Davis left them at the Ridge Avenue home. Now, in a cruel twist of fate, this house would later be set on fire to conceal Kylie's murder. She and Heather White were there at the trap house earlier that day. On one side of the living room, they were playing music and mixing drinks. Across the room, there were Wesley Dingus was busy tattooing Jeff, quote, Honcho, Seabock, and was pairing to do the same for Rebecca Reedy, who was about to join the gang. Also present was Chris. Christina McGee and Osha Scherer, and I know I didn't say that right, Anthony McBride and Devin Miller, a girlfriend to McBride and another sex partner to Adams. Upstairs was Eric Gurnick and his girlfriend, Elizabeth Searles. They were in a bedroom, and there were Henry Hanks, Gary Saxton, Bill and Rosemary Heyman were upstairs. Adams came to the house just before midnight, and a neighbor immediately called the police department to inform them that he was likely there to cause trouble. 
It took 20 minutes, folks, for the police car to be dispatched. In the meantime, Adams fired a gun into the house's floor, most likely to intimidate Dingus, a recently released convicted armed robber. The same neighbor dialed the police department again, urging them to come to the scene. Inside, Adams, Dingus, Edmondson, and others continued their drinking spree until Kylie arrived shortly after midnight. On her arrival, Adams demanded the money Kylie had been collecting from selling meth for him. He counted it. Then he accused her of being $50 short. Standing next to Dingus with her arm around his shoulder, Kylie tried to explain that she had to use some of the money to pay her driver and hadn't sold all the meth yet. Meanwhile, Adams and Edmondson stood on the other side of the bar listening to her explanation. Adams quickly retrieved a handgun from underneath the bar and shot Kylie in the face from point-blank range. Her body dropped lifelessly into the floor. Adams surveyed the stunned faces in the room before coldly announcing, She's dead. In an attempt to conceal the crime, he ordered Edmondson to escort the woman upstairs. At the same time, Gurnick was descending the staircase to find out the cause of the disturbance. Witnesses describe a large volume of blood at the scene. In response to a neighbor's complaint, police officers arrived again at the premises just in time to hear the fatal gunshot. They quickly established a perimeter and called for backup. Inside, Adams attempted to hide the evidence by covering Kylie's corpse with clothing before handing over the weapon to Edmondson, who then hid it away in an upstairs bedroom. Adams retreated to the safety of an upstairs bedroom alongside Edmondson, while other scared occupants spread out across various rooms in the house. Meanwhile, officers pound on the front door, which Saxton instructed everyone to ignore. Veronica Bruce had just arrived at the house in search of Gurnick and some drugs. Bruce, who had been intimate with Adams also, had been there earlier cleaning, but left up, you know, upset over his infidelity. She returned with her young child and Bree Rollins and found the house encircled by officers. Fearful, Bruce and Rollins stayed in their car, worried about potential outstanding arrest warrants. So inside the house, Gurnick found the hidden gun and in an attempt to better hide it, placed it in a bag on the bedside's table. Gary Bill called his brother Paul to the house. After they arrived, Paul, along with Derek Weaver, waited anxiously outside for Gary to come out of the house. As the police seemed to leave, Adams and Edmondson saw their chance to escape. They exited through the rear door only to be instantly met by Patrolman Pish, one of Zanesville's police department patrolmen. They lied to the officer, stating they had just arrived and found an empty home. Edmondson also repeated that lie under oath to the grand jury. Despite the officer's observation of their leaving the house, they were secured in a patrol cruiser and later released. Now remember that $30,000 that was reported earlier that was spent on this because they walked away from a trap house after knocking on a trap house and nobody answering, hearing a possible gunshot. Just remember that, folks. So those two... Edmondson and Adams moved on to a house at 317 Brighton Boulevard, home of Ada McQuarrie and her son, another real writer's associate, Ty Ketchen, and called Olivia Davis for a ride. 
Davis then dropped Edmondson at her mother's property on Ohio 555 near Stavertown. Meanwhile, back at the murder scene, Larry Hamilton arrived. He gathered several of the murder witnesses and took them to another trap house at 230 Luck Avenue. Gurnick seized everyone's phones to check if the crime had been leaked. Following this, Hamilton headed to his dwelling where he lived with Georgia Hamilton. She revealed to detectives later that Larry was significantly distraught and recounted Adam's horrific actions. On the early dawn of March 31st, Veronica Bruce arrived at the murder scene with her mother, Tina, quote, Aunt, capital T, Gross. They had been summoned by Adams and were assigned a job, retrieve the murder weapon from the crime scene and dispose of it. Gross traveled to Ridge Avenue in her black Hummer, went inside, retrieved the gun, and discarded it. When they were finished, Gross informed Gurnick with a simple phone call, announcing, It's gone. Bruce and Rollins followed Gross back to her residence on Leffler Road in Cannellsville, where they stayed the night. As the day continued to dawn, Kemp arrived at the Ridge Avenue house with a large utility trailer. Time was of the essence, and he swiftly dropped off the trailer before disappearing into the house. Moments later, Kemp emerged and made his way over to the Luck Avenue home. At Luck Avenue, Koenig and Dingus joined Kemp, forming a trio completely and deeply involved in this macabre plot. Together, they embarked on a return journey to the Ridge Avenue home with one mission, to clean the crime scene and erase any evidence of the murder that had taken place there. Meanwhile, Adams was making a flurry of phone calls to enlist help for the cleanup effort. James Williams, already aware of the murder, offered his assistance. Rumors began to circulate in the gang community, hinting at Adams' involvement in Kylie's death. Michael Church called a friend to make arrangements with Thomas Levi King at another trap house to obtain a truck that was an individual who was currently serving time in city jail. To deceive investigators also, one of the girls created a fake Facebook file for Kylie, making others believe she was still alive. While the female accomplices cleaned the crime scene, the focus shifted to the disturbing task of transferring Kylie Lindell's body. Larry Hamilton was given the chilling assignment of securing a vehicle for the job. Finally, Gurnick and Saxton carefully moved Kylie's remains into a sleeping bag, concealing her deep within the couch. To ensure no unexpected shifts, they secured the sleeping bag within the cushions using ratchet straps. At the same time, Michael Church and Dingus set out in a pickup truck towards a secluded alley behind 317 Brighton Boulevard. Veda McQuarrie awaited them there, ready with a rented truck. At the same time, Adams made his way to the upper apartment at 230 Ack Avenue, where he would encounter Jason Goodwin, a member of the notorious Real Riders gang. However, a problem arose, forcing Adams and Goodwin to take a stolen car belonging to Davis. Their destination, the pharmacy. Their real purpose, collecting Charles Kissinger 
an important player in unfolding events, and his girlfriend, Deborah Spinks, who is the mother of another Real Riders gang member, Anthony McBride. With Kissinger now by their side, the group reconvened at the Brighton House, where Gurnick and Church anxiously, anxiously awaited them. The stage was set for the next phase of their plan. As this group of individuals, with their dark secrets and twisted motives, continued their deadly dance. So on Easter Sunday, April 1st, detectives stumbled upon potential evidence of a homicide case. Kylie's family raised an alarm when she failed to make an appearance at the previous day's dinner. Kemp, Adams, Gurnick, and Dingus were devising plans to destroy the crime scene, convinced that the evidence cleanup efforts weren't good enough. They did decide to set the house on fire. Despite Kemp's lack of house insurance, he agreed to the plan. As dust fell, Davis was told to get the gasoline and take it to the crime scene. In the early hours of April 2nd, Sexton had succeeded in setting the house ablaze and ran from the vicinity alongside Dungeness and Paul Bill. The investigators were 72 hours behind at this point. Gathering the camera footage from neighboring residents and businesses, the detectives picked up the investigator pieces. Every defendant they talked to held a different part of the puzzle. Adams, with no good intentions, contacted Jasmine Poljack, who had a previous romantic relationship with his brother, Donald Adams. They had made plans to go together to a hotel where they spent the night engaging in sexual activity. During their time together, Poljack learned about the murder of Lindell. And the next day, on Easter Sunday, Adams was supposed to provide Poljack with narcotics, and in return, Poljack offered Adams transportation. They drove to where Larry Hamilton lived, and due to difficult situations, Adams couldn't reach his usual drug supplier. So Hamilton arranged for him to meet Eric Wheezy Gibson at the Putman Tavern, a well-known meeting place back then for felons involved in drug trafficking. Gibson later admitted to providing the drugs and even boasted about how the gang had taken someone out as a result of disrespecting their game. Poljack bragged on a wiretap that she was called upon to assist due to her trusted status among the gang members. As Adams sought refuge in a Heath hotel, little did he know that U.S. Marshals was closing in on him, and on April 7th, they apprehended Adams, making a significant breakthrough in the case. Meanwhile, investigators tirelessly searched for potential burial sites, but their efforts proved fruitless. Then, on April 10th, a car chase involving a stolen vehicle led to the detainment of Dingus, who was found to have connections to Gurnick and Adams. Dingus was subsequently taken to the Zanesville Police Department for further questioning. It was during this time that he did provide detectives with crucial information, including the whereabouts of Kylie. Detectives wasted no time and immediately followed up on Dingus's lead. To their devastating discovery, they did find Kylie Lindell's lifeless body still wrapped in a sleeping bag. Her family was, thank God, able to lay her to rest. In total, 20 individuals were initially charged in connection to Kylie's murder. 
Shockingly, an additional 38 people were indicted throughout the course of the investigation, many for outstanding warrants or drug-related charges. It became clear that not only one person senselessly taken Kylie's life, but a considerable number of individuals had also participated in the cover-up. And folks, that concludes the final segment of Sinister Shadows, a small town under siege, where we have followed the twisted investigation into the murder of Kylie Lindell. The aftermath of this case has a lasting impact on my community, uncovering a web of deceit and criminal activity that reached far beyond this one tragic event. The extensive efforts of the detectives, patrolmen, and legal professionals were not in vain. Their tireless work led to the indictment of 58 individuals' connection to Kylie's murder and related crimes. I'm just going to ask why so many criminals were out on the streets and they were not serving justice and they were in our community. But just by this one contact, bam, you're under arrest. I mean, honestly, I don't get it. Was there a motive behind the murders that maybe remains hidden beneath the surface? Is there a link between Kylie, Ashley, and the real writers? What about Ashley's husband, Oki's family? And the influence they have on this community, does that come into play? These lingering questions and unresolved connections deserve investigating. The role of Adams and his alleged violence and Ashley's fear are crucial threads that we must follow to uncover the full truth. Now, it's alleged that Adams did another murder before Ashley and Kylie. That's been said by a few people. In the weeks to come, we will provide updates on the whereabouts of the individuals that were involved in this awful crime. We would like to express our gratitude to all of you who had followed us on this chilling journey. Your support and dedication mean the world to us. While we may not be professionals, we are passionate about seeking truth and raising awareness. Don't forget to join our Facebook group, folks. That's where we engage in discussions about the case and provide additional resources for your own research. Each case features police reports, court records, autopsy reports, and many other documents and files. Remember, we're not here to interfere with law enforcement. If you have any information, please contact our tip line at 740-299-4822 or the Miss Kingdom County Sheriff's Office at 740-452-3637. Thank you for joining us. Stay safe, stay informed, and never stop seeking justice.